morning to my church family. Second Kings 5, 1 through 14. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Simra. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away a captive out on the land of Israel, a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, With that my lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover from his leprosy. And one went in and told his lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid, and that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter of the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rented his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elijah, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rented this clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Philippar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke unto him and said, My father, if the prophet that bid thee do great, some great thing, wouldn't thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came up again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God. He, he and all his company and came and stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take the blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant shall henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. 
In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth to the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he learned on, leaned on my hand, I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. The word of God for the people of God. A couple of weeks ago, I got to be part of a really neat event. In, in the Detroit area, there's an organization called End Prejudice. And the goal of End Prejudice is to break down the walls that divide us and harm our communities by gathering people together and helping them to see and hear one another in a deeper way. And so they put on these events where they gather diverse groups of people around food and around music, and around art, and they encourage people to have conversation with one another. And I got to be part of this event that happened a couple weeks ago at Rochester University. This organization, End Prejudice, invited some Detroit-area musicians and poets to come to Rochester University for a a night of food and and artistry. And they also, for some reason, invited me to come and do my my weird white guy poetry thing. Uh, And so... I was happy. I was happy to accept that invitation, and uh, I went down to Rochester University a couple weeks ago, and, and it was an incredible event. The the artists, particularly the musicians out of Detroit, were just top notch. It was world class music in a, a small sort of a venue, and these musicians were getting up and they were doing covers of Stevie Wonder, and, and, and they were doing their own original music, and they were doing Nina Simone, and and. Uh, and then I got up and did my thing, and people were very gracious about that. And, and the crowd, the audience, was this fun mix of college students and faculty and community members and people from the Detroit arts and music scene. I had a great time at, at Rochester University a couple of weeks ago. And it turns out that my favorite part of the evening was probably the thing I was most nervous about going into the night. Now, one of the things that set this event apart from other you know, uh, concerts or poetry readings was, was that after each artist finished their set, after every musician performed, after every poet shared their poetry, they would stay on the stage And then the audience had a chance to ask questions. So people out in the audience had a chance to raise their hand and ask anything they wanted. Of course, that was the whole point of the event, right, was to learn how to see and hear each other at a deeper level. And I will tell you that I was a little bit nervous about this part of the evening. One of the things I like about Methodists is that they don't raise their hands and ask questions on Sunday morning. I let Jan deal with the portion of the congregation who uh, who is into that sort of thing. You You all have never done that to me during a sermon, and I really I really appreciate it. And so I was a little bit nervous about being put on the spot like that, but it turned out that this give and take and the back and forth between the artists and the audience was was the most interesting part of the evening. When it was my turn up on the stage, the people in the crowd asked some really interesting and probing questions. They asked some, some personal questions that gave me a chance to tell a little bit of my story, and I got to talk about how God called me into ministry, how God called me to be a pastor, and they also asked some questions 
that allowed me to, to talk about things I'm really passionate about. I got to talk about Flint, and I got to talk about Court Street, and I got to talk about why this work of ending prejudice is so important to us here in this congregation. I got to share a little bit of the history of this community. I shared with people that in the middle of the 20th century, the city of Flint was the third most segregated city in America. In the middle of the 20th century, Flint was the most segregated city north of the Mason and Dixon line, and I talked about the ways in which that legacy of segregation has left scars in this community and wounds that still haven't healed, and I got to tell people how proud I am to, to serve a congregation filled with people who are willing to wrestle with that legacy, who are willing to do the hard work of ending prejudice in our hearts and in our communities, and I meant it when I said it. I am so proud of this congregation and the work that so many of us are doing to end prejudice wherever it is that God has planted you. I don't think we know the half of what God is using this congregation to do all, all around this community. Last Sunday morning before worship, I had a chance to sit in with the Open Door Sunday School class. And it just so happens that the topic of conversation in the Open Door class last Sunday morning was, was prejudice and the ways in which we are afraid of people who are different from us in, in some way. And I got to eavesdrop on this back and forth as people shared their stories and their experiences, and also as people in the Open Door class talked about the ways in which they are working to end prejudice in their own homes and in their own communities. And one of the members of that class is a, a teacher, and he shared one of the ways in which he's working to end prejudice in his classroom. He talked about this thing that he does at the beginning of every school year. He said, at the beginning of every year, I have this conversation with my students where I ask them, how long do you think it takes for us to form an opinion about somebody? How long does it take after we meet somebody for the very first time for us to decide whether that person in our own mind is trustworthy whether that person is competent, whether that person is likable. He asks that question, and then he lets the, the students wrestle with it for a while, and he lets them share their guesses, and they say a few days, a few minutes, 60 seconds. And when all of the students have had a chance to share their guesses, then he shares the science with them. He shares with them that the researchers, psychologists out of Princeton University have demonstrated that it takes us less than one-tenth of a second to form an opinion about somebody from the very first time that we see their face. It takes us one-tenth of one second to decide whether we think somebody is competent, whether we think somebody is trustworthy, whether we think somebody is likable. If you give people more time than that to come up with an opinion, they don't change their opinions, their opinions just get stronger. They just reinforce that opinion that they make in that first one-tenth of a second. He shares with his students that this is how our brains are wired. This is how we are put together. Our brains have evolved to form snap judgments, to form quick impressions of people, quick evaluations of people. He said, and if we are aware of that fact, if we are aware that our brains are doing that, then we have an opportunity with a little bit of effort to take that initial impression, to take that first judgment that we render on a person and to set it aside and to see people in a deeper way and to hear people in a deeper way and to go beyond whatever prejudice went into that first impression, whatever prejudice went into that first judgment. This is how one teacher, one court streeter is working to end prejudice in our community. And this is also this, this thing we do where we form a snap judgment and the work that God calls us to of setting it aside 
and seeing each other in a deeper, in a truer way. This is what today's scripture reading is about. It's about the healing that happens when we set aside our first impressions and see each other in a deeper, in a truer way. In today's scripture reading, we have a story of a man called Naaman. And Naaman lived eight or 900 years before the birth of Jesus. Naaman, in his time, was a powerful general. He was the leader of the army of the king of Aram. Aram was in the part of the world that today we call Syria. Aram was in the part of the world that today we've been watching on the news all this week long. We've been seeing images coming out of that same part of the world. About a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, Aram, the nation of Aram, was a military superpower. Many nations had tried to conquer the Arameans and many nations had failed. And the Arameans were used to raiding their neighbors with impunity. The army of the king of Aram would cross the border and they would attack and they would conquer their neighbors and they would steal and plunder. They would take people and treasure. They would take whatever they wanted. They were used to raiding with impunity. And the Arameans worshipped many gods, but their main god, the chief god of all their gods, was a god called Hadad. And Hadad was the god of thunder. And Hadad was usually depicted as a mighty warrior wearing armor with a long beard and a double-edged sword in his hand. And Naaman must have reminded people of the god of thunder as he rode through the streets on his war horse. He must have been the spitting image of the god of thunder in every way but one. Naaman had some sort of an affliction. He had some sort of a disease of the skin. Some some translations of the Bible call the disease that Naaman had leprosy, but back in those days, leprosy was just a word that people used for any skin disease that they didn't know how to heal. And Naaman had this disease. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it would have been embarrassing. Even on hot days, Naaman wore long robes and heavy armor. He clothed himself from head to foot in order to hide the blemishes on his skin from his soldiers and from his servants. And Naaman went to doctors and he went to healers and he prayed to many gods in many temples, but no one was able to heal Naaman's illness. And then one day, Naaman received a message. In Naaman's household, there was a young girl, a young Israelite girl, Naaman had stolen her away from his family and enslaved her on one of his raids down into Israel. He had given this young girl as a gift to his wife. And one day, this young Israelite girl plucked up compassion and plucked up courage, and she said, she said to Naaman's wife, she said, Oh, if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, surely the prophet who lives in my homeland would be able to heal his skin. Naaman's wife passed on the message to him. And at this point, Naaman was so desperate that even though he had nothing but contempt for the Israelites, nothing but contempt for the land of Israel, he was willing to try just about anything in order to find healing, to find peace. And so Naaman decided to take a trip. He packed his bags and he headed down to the land of Israel. And Naaman didn't travel light. He traveled with a huge caravan of servants and soldiers. He traveled with horses and chariots. He traveled with wagon loads of silver and gold, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of silver, millions of dollars worth in gold. He rode through the land on a great big war horse, and people would have come out. They would have come from miles around to watch this caravan, to watch this parade as it passed through, to see this sight unlike anything they had ever seen before, this man who rode through their towns like a god on earth. And finally, Naaman arrived at the house of the prophet Elisha. 
And he sat on his great big horse outside the house of the prophet, and he waited for someone to come out and greet him. He sat there on his horse with all of his servants and all of his soldiers, with all of his armor and all of his long robes, with all of his silver and all of his gold. He sat there on that horse like the god of thunder, and he waited for somebody to roll out the red carpet. He waited for someone to come out and offer him refreshments. He waited for somebody to come out and treat him like the VIP that he was. He waited And he waited, and he waited, and it became clear finally that nobody was going to come out to greet him. Nobody was going to come out to welcome him. And so Naaman got down off his horse, and he walked up to the door, and he knocked on the door of the prophet's house, and he waited a moment, and then the door opened just a crack, and somebody stuck their nose out. It wasn't the prophet. It was the assistant to the prophet. He stuck his nose out, and he looked at Naaman, and he said, yeah, what do you want? And Naaman was confused, and he was a little bit angry. He had never been treated this way in his whole life, and so he announced who he was and why he had come, and the servant listened, and then the servant said, hang on a minute, wait here, and he closed the door in Naaman's face. And now Naaman was was beyond angry. You know, Naaman had come expecting for trumpets and fanfare to announce his arrival, but instead the welcome that he got was something like, like out of a Monty Python sketch. And he sat there outside the door and he became angrier and angrier. And finally the servant came back and cracked the door again. He stuck his nose out again. The assistant said to Naaman, the prophet says go down and jump in the Jordan River seven times. And then he slammed the door in Naaman's face. Well, now Naaman was furious and red in the face. He turned away from the door and he walked over to his horse and he started ranting to his servants and his soldiers. He said, what kind of a backward country is this? I thought surely the prophet himself would come out and he would wave his hands over my skin and he would use his magic and call on his God to heal my skin. And instead, he tells me to go and jump in the river. We've got rivers back at home, great big proper looking rivers, not like this muddy little stream that they call the Jordan River in this land. He said to his servants and to his soldiers, this has all been a great big waste of time. And then he got on his horse and he said, come on, everybody, let's go home. Naaman almost rode away in that moment. He almost failed the test. Because, of course, that's what all of this was, right? All of this was a test. When the prophet Elijah peeked through the curtains and he saw Naaman sitting on his war horse outside of his house, the prophet was able to see all the way down into Naaman's soul. He saw the truth about who and what Naaman was. When he looked at Naaman, he saw a powerful and prideful and prejudiced man. He saw a man who believed that because he was like a God upon this earth, because he was above everyone he had ever met, that he could do whatever he wanted, that he could take whatever he wanted, that he had become a prideful and violent and prejudiced man. And Elisha saw that Naaman needed a healing that went beyond skin deep. He saw an opportunity to send Naaman's home, not just, not just healed, but made well. And so he set a test for Naaman. He said, Naaman can have the healing that he came for, but only if he is able to do that thing in this world that is most difficult for him. He can have the healing that he came for, but only if he is able to do that thing in this world that comes least naturally to him. Naaman can have the healing that he came for, but only if he is able to humble himself. 
Only if he is able to strip off his armor and his long robes in front of his men. Only if he is able to take the advice of a prophet who won't even come out to see him. Only if he is able to get down in a muddy little river in a land that he has belittled and conquered and despised. Only then will he receive the healing that he came for. That was the test the prophet set for Naaman. And Naaman almost failed. He almost rode away. But as he was about to leave that place, his servants stepped in. For some reason, Naaman's servants spoke up. We don't know why they spoke up. Maybe it was because they were tired. They had just come on a long journey and they wanted a little break before they all got back on their horses and, and hit the road again. Maybe they spoke up because they loved Naaman and they wanted to see him healed. Maybe they spoke up because they didn't love Naaman and they wanted to see him jump in the river. We don't know why those servants why those servants spoke up. All we know is that they pleaded with Naaman. They said, listen, you have come all this way. You have made all this effort. And if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult or dangerous or heroic, you would have done it like that without a second thought. If the prophet had said, go fight a lion or go climb a mountain, you would have done it without hesitation. How much more then? Should you at least give this small and simple thing a try? Before we go, just jump in the river and give it a try. What could it hurt? The servants pleaded with Naaman. And he listened. And then a sort of miracle happened. There on his horse, Naaman reconsidered his decision. He set aside all of his initial judgments. He set aside his prejudice. He set aside his first impressions of this prophet and this land and that river. And he listened to reason. And he said, okay, I'll give it a try. And Naaman got down off his horse and he stripped off his armor. He took off his long robes. He exposed his blemished skin for all of his servants and soldiers and for all the world to see. And then he went down to the river and he got in the water and he washed himself seven times. And when Naaman came up from the water the seventh time, his skin was smooth and soft like the skin of a newborn baby. And this story still has so much to teach us. This story from a thousand years before Jesus was born still has so much to tell us today about how we can work to end prejudice here in our time, how we can move forward as God's people in our time. If we want to end prejudice, here is how we do it. We humble ourselves. We listen to the voices of people who have been enslaved. We open ourselves to the wisdom of other cultures. We learn to see the good in lands that have been conquered and belittled and disregarded. We get down off our high horse. We take off our armor. We place other people above us and get down in the mud. We set aside our first impressions. We set aside our initial evaluations of people. We take a moment to pause and reconsider and see each other more deeply and more truly. And if we can do that, if we can pass that test, then maybe we will begin to find healing in our cities and in our souls. Let's pray. God, give us the courage and the wisdom of Naaman 
who did that thing that was most difficult to him, who set aside his status, who set aside his privilege, who set aside his armor and made himself vulnerable, allowed other people to see him as he truly was that he might see himself as he truly was. Teach us how to humble ourselves as Jesus humbled himself. Show us how to become the servant of all that we might become servants of your son. That our souls and our cities might find peace. In Jesus we pray. Amen.